please turn with me to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 11. That's where we're going to be spending some time this morning. And while you, you turn there to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, I just want to say my name is Johnny. Uh, I'm here from Seattle. Uh, I've been serving for almost three years at Trinity Church Seattle as assistant pastor. Um, but I, I'm also planting a church, me and my family and, and a few others, uh, in, in another part of the city of Seattle called Christchurch Seattle. And uh, Lord willing, that will be, uh, we'll be launching weekly worship there this fall. Um, and I, I would really appreciate prayer for that. If you, if you can remember to do that, we, uh, we, we really just want to establish a, a congregation of God's uh, church and, and kingdom in our neighborhood. And, and we need the prayers and the support of, of the saints beyond our community to do that. Uh, so please pray for uh, a financial provision. We, we rely uh, heavily on, on giving from outside donors in this season of our ministry. Uh, and then also pray that we can gather more people onto our launch team. Uh, we, have, uh, we, we have some needs in terms of volunteer roles and, and also just generally people to fill uh, a room um, that, uh, that we, don't, we don't quite have enough of yet. And so we're going forward in faith. But pray, pray that God would gather people um, to, to our ministry as well. But enough from me. Hopefully you've all had enough time to turn to John chapter 11 now. And we will be reading uh, verses uh, 28 to 37. John 11, 28 to 37. And uh, the sermon coming to you this morning is actually one that I preached at a recent preview service at, uh, the, at Christ Church Seattle. So you're going to get a, a little taste of what it's like to be in a, on a church planting launch team. Um, it won't be that, that much different than a normal sermon, of course, but it's just the, the matter of the case. So John chapter 11, verses 28, and, and once again, this is the word of God, so listen carefully. When she, uh, that is Mary, or, or uh, Martha, that is, uh, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but, it was, uh, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Amen. Uh, would you pray with me? Our God, we thank you for your word, uh, sometimes which is crystal clear to all of us. And sometimes it takes work to figure out what your word means. Uh, sometimes your ways in our life, Lord, are crystal clear. And sometimes it takes work to figure out what that means. Uh, but Lord, we pray that you would give us faith now 
to understand this word that you've given us, this, this representation, this picture, this, uh, the, the truth of what Jesus did in this situation. And, and we pray that we would be filled by your spirit and that we would be comforted, that we would be instructed, that we would be encouraged, and that we would uh, apply this word to our hearts and minds and lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, over 10 years ago now, I, I was doing some mission work in Uganda, in Africa, and I had an opportunity with uh, some friends and relatives that I was there with to go on a safari trip um, in, uh, in, in Africa. And we, we had the, the really cool opportunity of seeing lions. Um, and it was the middle of the day, and these lions were asleep kind of next to a, a thicket of, of some kind of bush uh, in the shade. Um, and, and, and we were in our safari van, and we sort of inched closer and closer to these magnificent creatures and opened the side door, and we just spent five minutes or so looking at these sleeping lions. And uh, we were probably 15 or 20 feet away, um, and, and we got close enough that you could see how amazing these things were. Now, I've seen lions in the zoo before, but there's something about a wild lion. I don't know if they're bigger or, or what, but it, you, you could just see how powerful this thing was. And you didn't need to, 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 to observe the lion chasing down an antelope and killing it and eating it to, to, to know that it means business. You could just see from the size of its head. At one point, the, the male uh, picked up its head and yawned, and you could see its teeth, and it was quite a, quite a sight to behold. And again, I, you could just tell from just being 20 feet away, catching a glimpse at how... Uh, magnificent this creature was. And, and that's what a lion is. That's what a lion is. And, and the Bible is very intentional uh, in, in the, the, the choice that it makes to represent Jesus with animals in the animal kingdom. And there, there are two primarily that come to mind that are used uh, a number of different times in the Bible. And one of them is a lion. The, the Bible is very intentional to represent Jesus metaphorically with a lion uh, and not any of the millions of other animals it could have, like maybe a golden retriever. Jesus is not like a golden retriever. Um, so when's the last time that you got up close uh, and personal enough to Jesus, to see the raw, powerful, even wild potential power in his nature. So, I, I, I wonder how often, maybe, some of our fears and anxieties would be helped if we saw Jesus in that way a little bit more often than we do. We're afraid of all kinds of danger. Rightfully, there's, the world is a dangerous place. But maybe we, we would be a little bit less afraid if we knew that Jesus was not a golden retriever. Who, in a home invasion, we, we might be afraid that theoretically he's, he can be big and powerful and has sharp teeth, but we've trained him only to sit on the ground and beg for belly rubs. That's not the kind of Jesus you want in a home invasion. And so thankfully, that's not the kind of Jesus that Jesus is, of course. And this passage is kind of like getting in the safari van and inching closer and closer until you get up close enough to see what Jesus is really like. 
And I think it's an, uh, an invitation for us, if you will, to undomesticate our Jesus. So I, I want to look at that under three headings, uh, his presence, his power, and his purpose, namely his untamed presence. And then we see powerful emotion, and we also see uh, a purposeful mission. So first of all, his untamed presence. The presence of Jesus in this scene is the most powerful thing here. So we're in John chapter 11 for a little bit of context. Uh, This is the, the famous chapter where Jesus raises Lazarus. But for most of the chapter, by the end of our section, we're at verse 37, and he hasn't raised Lazarus yet. He spent the whole time sort of anticipating and waiting, at points even delaying his actions. And the people around him are wondering what's going on. First of all, his disciples, and then he comes and interacts with Martha. That's the previous section. And she says this, this thing, Jesus, if you were here, you, you would have stopped Lazarus from dying. And it's the same thing that Mary says to him in our section. Uh, So people are wondering what's going on with Jesus. Why is he not acting? But at the same time, his presence is powerful. And and Mary, as well as Martha in the previous section, has this faith instinct of going and being near Jesus, especially in a time of grief. And so at, at the very beginning of our passage, Martha tells Mary that Jesus wants to have a meeting with her, and Mary gets up and goes to Jesus. And the intention was for it to be a private meeting, of course, but uh, interestingly, the crowd of people, the the friends and relations that came to help the family in the grieving process, because Lazarus has just died a few days ago, they're with Mary, and then they see her get up, and they're thinking, they must, or she must need our help. Maybe she's going to the tomb to grieve. She needs us to be with her. But they were wrong, of course. She just wanted some private time with Jesus. And so I think there's actually a sense of frustration in the interaction with Mary and Jesus here. There's there's an edge and a tension around the words that are not spoken, uh, around the things that are left unsaid because it's a public situation. And if you were to compare and contrast this with Martha's meeting, Again, just a section ago, there, there's lots of words spoken. And it's an encouraging tone throughout. But here, there's frustration. There's, after Mary says, if you had been here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. There's not a chance for a follow-up conversation where Jesus can encourage and, and bring out the faith that is threatened by grief. And so faith is left un- unspoken. And Jesus is almost completely silent in this scene, but his presence is still powerful because Jesus is still Jesus. He's the same Jesus as before. The same Jesus who helped Martha rediscover her hope is the one, and the same one that's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, the exact same Jesus. He's adaptable to each situation, you could say. You know, sometimes the words of Jesus are the leading edge of his powerful presence, but sometimes it's just the, the sheer weight of his embodied person, so to speak. And he's there more silently, but he's still there. And so however Jesus is showing up in a particular scene, he's the greatest reality in that scene. And Jesus, uh, living, breathing, heart beating, eating, sleeping, sweating, walking, talking, and sometimes just silently being there, Jesus. Let me remind you that he is the embodiment, the presence of the incarnation of God in that scene. 
the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable one made man in Christ. That's, that's who we're dealing with. And like Mary, you might be in a scene right now fraught with frustration and wordless groping for meaning. But if you have Christ, you are still in the presence of God. A God who is bigger than the universe itself has chosen in Christ to participate in a very human drama, in a very human way, because he himself became human. And you need to remember that just because God became human does not mean that we can domesticate him. He's still God. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus does things that are unexpected. He's not always going to fit our formulas. He acts in a way that's perfectly consistent with the character of God, but not necessarily consistent with your expectations of what that should look like. So one, one scene, he may come with words, filling our intellect, providing clarity and faith and, and peace, but he may come the next day with silence and delay. And, you know, it reminds me of uh, what many of you are probably familiar with, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia series. And there's one, one scene in the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe book where uh, Mr. Beaver, uh, Talking Beaver, is speaking to the, the human children as they're trying to get their bearings. They've recently passed through the portal of the wardrobe into another world, and they're trying to figure things out. And he's telling them about this creature, Aslan. He says, Aslan is a lion. He's the lion, the great lion. And then what, a, what an honest and perceptive question from Susan, one of, the, one of the children. And she says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That, that, that's an ingenious piece of allegory uh, in, in, in literature there. Because that's, that's what Jesus is like. Is he safe? Well, maybe not always. But maybe that's good. And, and we see that as we keep going and we find Jesus display powerful emotion. Uh, have you ever uh, misread the emotional temperature in the room? So for me, sometimes it's when I'm with someone and I assume based on their, 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 their visible uh, person or something they've said that they are joking, but they're actually being serious. And so they say something that they mean to be serious. I interpret it as joking and I laugh and that's the wrong call. Uh, immediately, the, the, the sense is that I failed to pack a sweater and it's way too cold for a t-shirt in the room. And it's like I forgot to check the weather app or I should have checked it again and I, I missed it. And it's a big mistake. It feels really awkward. Well, Jesus doesn't make those mistakes. And Jesus reads the emotional temperature correctly all the time. And he will always respond appropriately. But he doesn't always respond according to how others want him to. He doesn't care uh, quite like we do about awkwardness. He responds, again, according to the character of God. And that's sometimes surprising. So if you put yourself in Mary's shoes, she's full of grief. Her brother just died. And she's trying to make sense of why Jesus wasn't there before. 
And she's surrounded by the, this crowd of, 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 of weeping Jews grieving along with her. And, and that's the emotional temperature in the scene, grief. And, and, and maybe we want Jesus to be the strong one who comes with intellect and reason and, and with assurances of faith, with strong words like that, to help bring others back from the brink of, of losing it emotionally. We might prefer that kind of Jesus. But he doesn't show up that way here. He comes and famously he weeps. Before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, maybe even minutes before, he weeps with those who weeps. He takes time to grieve as well. And so as a quick aside, if you are grieving, I, I really appreciated the prayer that was prayed earlier. If, if, if There are all kinds of reasons in this life to grieve. So if you are grieving something this morning, you, you have to know that, that Jesus is not some stoic superman, uh, incapable of withstanding sympathy and compassion. He is a savior that, that takes time to weep with us. Jesus is the embodiment, uh, for 2 Corinthians 1 says, of the God of all comfort, who God has given to us to comfort us in our afflictions. But here's the point, and we might miss this. As comforting as that is, that comfort is not a domesticated comfort. What do I mean by that? Well, we're told that Jesus and Mary, or that Jesus sees Mary and the Jews weeping. And in our English translations of the Bible, at least, it says that he was deeply moved. Deeply moved. And that's kind of a general way of saying he's, he was feeling strong emotions himself. But what were they? What, what, what did it look like for Jesus to be deeply moved here? It might not be what you think. It's deeply moved is an imprecise translation because the Greek word is, is actually more specific. It refers to a visible, big bodily outburst of anger, actually. Uh, so so the, the, the word, the, the image, the mental picture in the word is, is one of a snorting horse. That's what Jesus kind of looked like here, a strong, visceral eruption. And Jesus didn't have to use words. He didn't have to say, I'm angry, because you could see it in him if you were there. You could see an angry Jesus. And what's going on with that? Well, it's, it's sort of a complex mix of emotional experience. You see, Jesus is not not sad. He's just more than sad. Jesus is, I guess you could say, angry sad. If you've ever experienced this, and you probably have, it's usually in a situation where something has gone wrong, something bad, something sad, something maybe it was taken from you or from someone you love, but you also see in that uh, injustice. So it's not just that something was taken, but something was taken by someone or by something. There is someone rightfully to blame for this. So maybe, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the different kind of emotional reaction that you might have to seeing uh, your kid lose a favorite toy of theirs and they're sad and you might feel some sympathy with them for that compared to a bigger kid coming and stealing and breaking that toy you wouldn't just be sad you would feel a little bit angry with that other kid right there's a difference between standing at the graveside of a friend that has died and maybe sitting in a courtroom as a convicted killer is sitting at the other side of the room, feeling no remorse, 
for the terrible thing that they've done. You see, there's tragedy, and then there's tragedy precipitated by injustice. And Jesus sees death and sin and unbelief as the latter. It's not just that which is sad, but representing something that has been violently taken by, or from those that he loves. And so this scene, as Jesus sees what death has done, what he, as he sees even the, the, the unbelief of the people around and the way that Mary is confused and not able to make sense of it and her faith is threatened, Jesus is not just sad, he's angry. He's angry at what the enemy has done here. His close friend, the daughter of his father, is caught up in, in hopelessness. And her brother is in the grave. And Jesus is losing his cool. His anger, though, is, is not like ours. It's not purposeless. It's purposeful. It's strong and strategic. You see, just, you can think of it just a sixteenth of an inch beneath his skin. There's a burning engine of divine life and energy that's empowering his uh, actions, his reactions here. And so his holy bodily revulsion, it's, it's, it's coming from perfect righteousness and love. That's an incarnation itself of God. You know, so his, his human body and soul is communicating God's character to us through anger. And, and in this scene, as Jesus is, is angry at death and sadness and unbelief, saying that this is not the way it should be. This has been stolen from the world. This has been stolen from my people. That's what God is like. Maybe we don't often think about it that way, but that's what God is like. And you can see it in the blood rushing to Jesus' face. You can imagine maybe even clenched fists, eyes narrowed and focused, nostrils flaring, accelerated breathing, because the cells in his body need more oxygen to sustain this state that he's in. And it raises a question, doesn't it? Is he quite safe? If this is what Jesus is like sometimes, is, is he quite safe? It sure doesn't look safe, does it? But the best answer to that question is by answering, first of all, a more important question. Is that the Jesus that we need? So I think that's the Jesus we need. And especially if, if, if you're new to Christianity, there's something here that's actually central to the message of Christianity. Central to the gospel. You see, Jesus is God in our flesh. He, who, who came to enter into our experience, into our sadness, into our suffering in order to save us from sin and death. And so Jesus, whatever you might say about him, he was self-aware of this mission that he had, this calling from the Father on his life, and it drove him forward to do everything that he did, drove him forward, and drove his, his emotional reactions to things, even his anger in this scene. But that also means that his anger is not, is not the kind of anger that, that we often see 
in ourselves or in others. It, it's not the, the kind of self-righteous narcissism uh, that, that, that might you know, lead a, a CEO to get really angry at his employees or those underneath him because they're just not up to snuff. This is the anger of, of someone who loves goodness and righteousness and, and holiness and beauty. It's the expression of a desire for the intended life and the wholeness and the peace of creation and seeing that, that despite what it could and should have been, it is the way it is. It's, a, it's an anger that's directed at death and at Satan and at sin that stands in the way of that goodness. And it was this holy drive and calling that in other contexts looks like compassion and empathy and healing. That here is anger. It's that passion, that drive, that love that carried him to the cross where he died to save us from our sin. It's the thing that, that kept him going under the weight of our guilt. It's the thing that rescued us from death. So again, self-aware that this was his calling and destiny. He burned with compassion for sinners as well as, as anger at the enemy. And that's the emotional intensity of Jesus. He carried his calling and his cross-directed destiny around in his body. As, as a true human being, he carried this around in his body. And there's these moments in the Gospels, this being one of them, where his, his body is almost breaking because the weight is too much for one human body. And, 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 and that's, that's a pointer to what happened actually on the cross, where what killed Jesus was his human body being unable to take the, the, the sheer weight of what was going on spiritually, dying for the sins of the world being forsaken by the Father. But what put him there? It's the same love here. It's the same love as right here. Expressed differently and unexpectedly, even wildly, but it's, it's love for creation, love for you, love for me, love for us. That's Jesus. So, is Jesus safe? Well, not if you're trying to tame him. Because Jesus as he is, is exactly what we need. That kind of pure passion and, and divine energy given to us in such a way that can actually save us. That's what we need. And that's who Jesus is. That leads me to our third point. A purposeful mission. Jesus has a purposeful mission. The only words that he says in this scene uh, are, are, are to get him to go to where he needs to be to fulfill what he's come to do, which is to raise the dead. He says, where have you laid him? Driven by this anger, he's still controlled. He doesn't lash out at the others around him. He says, I'm going to get to the heart of where I've got to go and solve this problem. Where have you laid him? That was Jesus's missional identity, you could say. Uh, a, a resolution that goes further and further into death and darkness to defeat the enemy once and for all. And again, it's not always pretty, maybe. You know, the Jesus who walks into the, the deep, dark cave of the enemy and then comes out a few minutes later with a bloodied sword in one hand and the, the, the head of the enemy in the other, that's not the Jesus that you want to bring home for Sunday dinner. But that's the Jesus that we need sometimes. That's the Jesus that we need. And the question is, when you see that, when you see that in Scripture sometimes, like in this text, 
How do you make sense of that Jesus? What's your response to that Jesus? Uh, One of the themes that comes up all through this chapter is that Jesus is not primarily looking for self-willed, strong people who are able to conquer like he does. Jesus is looking for people who, even though maybe they can't make sense of what's going on, they're weak, and they know that they're weak. They trust him. They see him, and they follow him because they trust him. So the calling is not to follow Jesus because we can muster up almost as much strength as he has, almost as much holy anger as he has, and be like him. The call is to follow him because we see how much we need him, and we trust him, And we know that there's no life apart from him, so we might as well get behind him and follow him. That's the calling here. And and, and when we do that, we actually participate in his purposeful mission. And, And the line, the most important line drawn in the kingdom is, do you trust Jesus enough to know that that's where your life comes from? Or do you sort of skeptically sit on the sidelines? Sadly, the, many of the people in this scene, the, the crowd, their responses to Jesus that's right at the end, uh, it's, it's kind of that sitting skeptically on the sidelines. Like, I wonder what this means. I wonder what's going to happen. We're not going to do anything with this Jesus. We're not going to trust him. We're going to wait and see. You know, when, when they say, see how he loved him, it's true. Jesus did love Lazarus. But then the others say, could, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And th- there's, there's sort of an unspoken, it's too bad that his love wasn't good enough to save Lazarus in there. You know, it's not the voice of faith. It's the, the voice maybe of those who are walking, or it's, it's not the voice of those walking in the same direction of Jesus. It's the voice of the, the commentator sitting up in, in the grandstands saying, oh, you know, he he tried, but he didn't quite make it. Totally missing who Jesus is. Totally, totally blind to that that life of God in him. That's a tragic mistake. To see the presence of Jesus as a tragic story of the failed hero, unable to come through in the end, rather than seeing deeper with the eyes that he gives us, so, how, how do you see the presence of Jesus in your life? Because most of the time, our life does kind of look like this. We, we, we have a perception of the promises of God in Christ, that he has come to give new life, that he's come to do amazing things, but we don't often see amazing things. We, 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 at the very least, we see amazing things in faith, mixed in with death and sadness and unbelief and the fog of confusion around us. And we we believe that Jesus is there. And how do we make sense of him being there in that scene? Is our our default bent to trust him? Well, I I would say that it, it, it certainly should be. But it shouldn't be because we're able, again, to muster up the strength to figure figure it out on our own. Uh, the disciples and Mary and Martha were not able to figure out what Jesus was doing on their own. The only, throughout all of chapter 11, the only one that knew that Jesus was going to raise Lazarus was Jesus and God the Father uh, up until he actually raised Lazarus. And then when he did, they were shocked. Even though he says multiple times and points to and, uh, and hints at what he's about to do. So it's not about figuring out what Jesus is going to do. 
Even if it's foggy, it's about getting behind him and following him. And again, that key is about seeing that he is who you need and trusting him. And I think just as, as, as a closing remark, that, that has a lot to say for us about the presence of unbelief around us in, in the world. You know, I, I live in Seattle and I'm trying to plant a church in Seattle. Uh, there's a lot of unbelief around us, um, a particular kind of unbelief. Uh, it probably looks different than the kind of unbelief that's here in Linden. Um, but unbelief is, is very present and it's overwhelming sometimes. There's a lot of people that don't believe in Jesus and don't want to believe in Jesus, that don't care about Jesus. So what do you do about that? Uh, There's a temptation to be sort of afraid, sad about that, to to have that be the emotional response. It's not a bad thing to be sad about unbelief. Unbelief is a sad thing. But to be afraid of unbelief, to respond to people Uh, that are not believing in Jesus with a fear that doesn't uh, challenge, a fear that doesn't engage relationally. I've I've felt that in the past, but I don't think that's really appropriate because that's not how Jesus responds to people who don't believe in him. He's not afraid to, uh, to, to push too hard. He's not afraid to bring up the, 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 the key points of unbelief in someone's life. He's, in, in, in God's timing, especially if he's calling someone to himself, he will challenge. And, and, and for all of us, we have stubborn areas of unbelief in our hearts too. Don't be afraid to let God in on that, to, to reveal that to God, to let God know what you're thinking, what you're struggling with in prayer, because that's often the beginning of that process of him challenging and teaching and showing you where to go. Because he will. He, he will challenge us. He will challenge you as long as it takes. And, and sometimes all, all, all it takes is just that image of a Jesus that you weren't quite expecting. The, the, the Jesus that you can only see when you get, as it were, back in that safari van and you inch closer and closer until you see him in all his power and glory. And you realize that he's not quite who you were bargaining with, but he's so much more. But in faith, that's the kind of experience that really bolsters our confidence in him. That's the kind of Jesus that we needed. That's the Jesus that takes sin and death and unbelief head on and conquers. And that's the Jesus that calls us to come and follow him. And as we do, we get to be a part of his mission in the church. And that's where Jesus is calling us, that's where Jesus is going. And it'll be the ride of our life if we get behind him and follow him as well. Let me pray. Our God, we thank you for the word of Christ. We thank you for the, 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 the honesty of it. We thank you for the truth of Christ. We thank you that, that when we most need to be challenged, that you challenge us. We thank you that that, that Jesus conquers our, uh, our sin, that he defeats the death that uh, looms in the, the foreground of our future, and that he gives us hope that can pierce through and, and sustain even in the midst of our fears. So help us to see 
Jesus for who he truly is, his power and his glory, as well as his compassion and his graciousness and his goodness. Help us to see who Jesus fully is, that we would have a faith that holds in the midst of uh, whatever it is that we are dealing with and struggling with in, in this life. Uh, Lord, we, we pray that you would be glorified and that, and that Christ would be exalted by our lives, by our words, by our actions, and that we would follow him and that we would be faithful servants uh, to him and, and for him and with him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. At this point,